Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome to this webinar. I'm Mary Carroll and I'm Professor Emeritus of Global Governance here at the London School of Economics. And perhaps more relevant for today, I've known Amartya Sen since I was 10. Um, actually, this, this session is about Amartya's new book, and I don't think he needs any introduction at all, because I'm sure everybody knows who he is. But just in case, he is the Thomas W. Lamont Professor of Economics and Philosophy at Harvard. Uh, he's Nobel Prize winner for his work on social choice theory. He was a professor here at LSE from 1971 to 77, and now is an honorary fellow, I think, and the Amartya Sen Chair was established in 2019 in the Inequalities Institute. So anyway, we're here to discuss Amartya's book, Home in the World, And I wanted to start by saying it's a memoir, not an autobiography. And that's what makes it so really interesting, because it's really about the ideas and conversations uh, that have shaped Amartya's thinking. It's actually all about chatting. (laughs) And I must say that when I first went to India at the age of 21, that's what I loved about India. (laughs) which was having wonderful conversations with absolutely everybody everywhere on buses, in trains. And Amartya quotes in his preface, the Iranian scholar Al-Biruni, who visited India in the 10th century. And he says, in addition to all the wonderful mathematics, what was really great was the conversations and the ability of Indians to talk eloquently on any subject whether they knew anything about it or not. So actually, I think there is a thread that runs through the book, and this has to do with freedom and reason and the importance of discussion and deliberation and of empathy across borders, across different backgrounds uh, and human equality. And I think one of the key things of the book is that these are global ideas. They're found everywhere. There's a tendency here and in Europe to think that somehow we discovered freedom and reason and democracy. And I think that's what Amartya shows. He shows all its roots in Asian philosophy. And that's really, really fascinating. It's something I learned when I read The Argumentative Indian. So um, I'm going to start with, I think, sort of reading the book, actually, the thinker that most influenced Amartya. I may be wrong, and he can tell me if I'm wrong. (laughs) But I thought I would start with Rabindranath Tagore. And people may not know this, but Tagore was the great friend of Amartya's grandfather, And he, in fact, chose his name, Amartya, which means immortal. And um, he also established the school that Amartya went to in, I don't think I can, 
Cape Town. Yeah, and the name of the school was Uniting the World and the, and the Accumulation of Wisdom. You can tell me the name in Sanskrit. But anyway, I thought I'd start by asking him about Tagore because it seems to me that Tagore is not really understood in the West. There's a very obsession with sort of Indian thinking being mystical and all of that, whereas actually what comes across in this book is that it's all about reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rabindranath was, of course, a very, Rabindranath Tagore, that is, was a very big influence on, on my thinking. But you're right, there's an oddity in the sense that Tagore was um, a rationalist uh, and very keen on certain values, including... Um, uh, equality, I think. Uh, on the other hand, um, he also wrote poetry of a kind that um, uh, invoked, as it were, uh, God in an unclear way. That's very important. That uh, And that's true, by the way, uh, I speak here as a Bengali, uh, in Bengali poetry, that quite often the uh, love of human beings, other human beings, and the love of God come almost together. You don't even know who you, what you're talking about, and that ambiguity is present in Tagore, also, and uh, the rationalist aspect is much easier to accommodate in your relationship with other human beings and your fondness for it, your uh, protectiveness towards them, and so on. And yet, uh, they also uh, believe that uh, that Tegel clearly had, uh, uh, named the existence of, of a God. Now, what happened is when Tagore arrived in, in Europe as a literary presence, uh, Europe was quite concerned about the war that beginning. Uh, this was 1912, 1913, and so on. So the First World War about to burst open. And uh, the um, Tagore seems like a great spokesman for uh, amity by, between people. Uh, and of course, as Mary also mentioned, that there is a uh, aspect which is that of unity, certainly. But in the way Tagore was interpreted, by great poets, really, like uh, W.B. Yeats or Ezra Found, uh, took Tagore in a, in a rather mystical direction. And that was such a success, leading to all kinds of things, Nobel Prize being one of them, but everywhere he went, 
there would be massive crowds, whether it be England or Germany or, or France. And then that became the Tagore. And, and that wasn't really the goal that emerged uh, from debates in India. He, he was debating Gandhiji, Mahatma Gandhi, because Mahatma Gandhi would not give enough room to science. Uh, he even discussed it somewhere that Mahatma Gandhi had a morbid fear of sex. Uh, he doesn't say this up, there's too much kudui in Tagore to allow that point to be made in a big way. But it's there. Uh, and, and basically that devoted uh, uh, Tagore became the uh, model that you he was accepted in, in, in the West. And then... I was very interested by your discussion of the differences with Gandhi. I mean, you tell this story about the earthquake. Maybe you can tell it again. And was Gandhi much more mystical than Tagore? Oh, certainly. Uh, uh, and Gandhiji, Mahatma Gandhi, took in many subjects, instruction from God. And when there was a, for example, an earthquake, we have earthquake in which uh, hundreds of thousands of people got killed. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi was then running a campaign uh, appropriately against the caste system, against untouchability, declared that all these people dying in the in the uh, uh, earthquake was God's punishment for our bad practice, namely the practice of caste system and the acceptance of um, um, untouchability. Now, take over the Kosfiya and uh, try to explain how earthquakes happen and so on. So. In the acceptance of science, there was a really major difference. I mean, I was going to say Tagore's school, a school established by Tagore, and for a long time uh, guided by Tagore, uh, the science laboratories and reading of science classics was absolutely central to what we were learning, which wasn't quite true in the case of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was, I thought, and I don't know, I am going beyond the limit that Mary has given me. <laughs> but, uh, I, I thought initially that uh, Tigo was clearly right to take science to be important, and Gandhiji, Mahatma Gandhi was clearly wrong in that. But there was something else that was clear to me only later, became slowly clear, 
that Mahatma Gandhi, by identifying himself with the kind of uh, common people, mistaken assumptions, was also trying to establish a kind of link with with uh, with others, uh, which great thinkers like say Ludwig Wittgenstein, the great philosopher, also had, who felt that in some ways the uh, that unity is quite an important thing to to have, which Gandhi did more to cultivate than than Tagore did. So you can argue from different perspectives. But one result was that by the time Yates and Pounders had their uh, teeth into Tagore, if I may use such, a, such an expression, and he was uh, very much a religious product of a kind he never was. And uh, uh, Graham Greene told him, told us that the moment he looks at Tagore, he sees the fairly eyes of the theosophist. And I saw in one of his slaves discusses the absurdity of Tagore's position and called him Stupendranat Begor instead of Govindranat Tagore. Now, these were all caricatures and didn't fit Tagore at all. But there was no one to take of the casuals because those who admired him admired him for these reasons. And those who didn't like him uh, were, as it were, part of Graham Greene's caricature of Tagore. So he got completely distorted. in a while, even when he would be making very strongly rationalist criticism of Japan being a great civilization and yet destroying itself and other countries through its belligerent, through its nationalism. People won't see it as a point of real importance. I mean, some people. did like Edward Thompson and so on, wrote about them, but many others didn't see anything at all in that. I mean, what is fascinating in the book is what you write about agnosticism in Hinduism and how far back that agnosticism goes. There's a wonderful quote from the Vedas about how he may not even know who created the universe. <laughs> yes, it's from Vig Veda. Uh, you see, this is a, an interesting feature of, um, of the Indian classics. Veda is about 1500 BC. And uh, now that there is a enormous amount of Hindu revivalism. There are all kinds of uh, great things attributed to Veda, including sophisticated contemporary mass, which is, of course, 
absolute nonsense. Uh, Indian mathematics became enormously good, but the inspiration for that had really come from Greece and Babylon. And, uh, and it's through that influence that Indian mathematics, much later than the Vedas, started having a life of its own. And then, of course, became uh, a kind of world leader in pheronometry and in all kinds of other subjects. But in the Vedas, there were speculations. One of them was, was is there a god? If he did, was there a guy who did it all? If he did it all, does he remember it? Uh, and so on. So, uh, and that question goes through again and again in the early writings in the in the in the Hindu classics. And Tagore was an expert on that. Uh, uh, he didn't think uh, he didn't believe, for example, in the uh, Vedic mathematics, on which now, by the way, in India, you can get an get a PhD <laughs> because <laughs> the government had constructed educational development in India. But Ravindran thought that was important, and yet its limitations were also equally important. That balance which was strong in Tagore, uh, and I don't think it was quite that strong in 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 Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, we can argue on that. Uh, that uh, became a major factor in Tagore's way of approaching not just godly subjects, but also uh, society and and the human relationship uh, and uh, there was some profundity in it and I remember in my school I was pleased that I was allowed to think the way I would like to on my own uh, with or without agreeing with the law and that was really something quite uh, extraordinary for me. Oh gosh, there's so much we could talk about about this, but I feel we're already 20 minutes in and we should switch. We should jump across the bits about you wanting to be a Buddhist <laughs> and your grandfather following the steps of Kabir, which was another bit I really loved, who was a 15th century poet who tried to combine Hinduism and Islam. And I'm going to jump over all of that. And then there are lots of, this is just for the audience sake, wonderfully lyrical bits about Burma when you were very little. Your earliest memories were of Burma and about Bengal and its rivers. Anyway, we could go on and on, but I'm going to do a complete jump because there's so much in the book and other, the audience can read the book to Cambridge. <laughs> 
after having gone to this wonderful school and then you went to Calcutta for your undergraduate degree, you finally got a scholarship to Trinity. And again, there's lots you could say about Cambridge and economics, but I think the other really important person in your life was Piero Sraffa, and I couldn't resist. I knew Piero Sraffa very well because he was my father's best friend. And he was probably the most charming person I think I've ever met in my life. And I couldn't resist bringing up a picture of him so everyone can see how incredibly charming he looks. Yeah. I'll, I, how do I, I, I actually want to unshare, I, I don't want to, I'll stop sharing. I, it was just to give people a look of Srafa. But anyway, the two big influences at Cambridge, at least that's my impression from reading the book, were Piero Srafa and Morris Dobbs. And I thought I'd start with Srafa because Strafer was an extraordinary person. Not only did he influence you, but he influenced the three great 20th century intellectuals, Keynes, Wittgenstein, and Gramsci, which is quite extraordinary. And thinking about this, I mean, it's really interesting because actually he doesn't seem to have disagreed with Keynes, but he had real disagreements with both Wittgenstein and Gramsci, which really changed the way they thought. And actually, I think, contributed to this overall worldview that comes through in your book. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, because that is a very... uh, remarkable period in the history of Europe and particularly the history of uh, Germany and, and, and Italy. And Italy was sinking under fascism slowly from the 20s onward. Uh, the uh, people who were socialist uh, uh, where many of them became becoming fascist. Uh, uh, my wife, Eva Coloni, who was Italian, uh, her father uh, uh, was a socialist and editor of um, Avanti, a socialist journal, which Mussolini had been editor of in 1911. Gosh, I didn't know that. He left that. And my <laughs> father-in-law was killed by the fascists, shot by the fascists, two days before Americans liberated Rome. And Americans were sitting on the other side, other side of, the, of the river. And then they, quite a time across that, uh, this execution of a socialist, which uh, Mussolini uh, had all that under. It's an interesting story there about whether how keen he was and to what extent he was under Nazi command, uh, which were big influence in Italy. Uh, there was a uh, Safa um, uh, was born 
in that period, uh, a Jewish family. Uh, and he, uh, his father was um, the uh, uh, rector of Bukoni University in, in Milan. And uh, uh, so he grew up in this academic atmosphere and uh, he was very skeptical. I, I spent a lot of time uh, in uh, with Safa. He was not only my first teacher, my main teacher, and indeed the biggest influence on me. Uh, the fact is that I spent a huge amount of time chatting with him. And uh, it was becoming clear to him both that he should join the left-wing forces. He came very close to being a communist, but never, never joined the Communist Party. There was something, and we, if we have time, we can discuss it. There was certain respect. He found them to be not acceptable. But he, he was there very much present. Now, my father-in-law, who knew Safa, but uh, was socialist as opposed to communist. Now, the Communist Party was led by uh, Gramsci, and there were a lot of interesting philosophical disputes in which uh, Safa and Gramsci were involved, and which eventually turned out, I don't know that we have time to talk about that, into a very important in correcting Wittgenstein's uh, philosophical uh, views, which were the most dominant philosophical views in, in Cambridge at that time. Now, I'm mentioning all that because you have to understand the atmosphere, it seems to me, uh, where uh, not being left wasn't a suffer didn't see it as an option, but he knew that uh, he was under great danger. Mussolini was writing threatening letters to, to Piero Safa's father, uh, Angelo Safa, that he should, uh, his son should uh, have a radical change in politics. And that is the time when he moved to, uh, to, to Cambridge and started teaching there. Uh, he never quite liked teaching. I think what he likes most is uh, what Bengalis call Adda, namely sitting down together and just chatting away for a long time. He didn't like organized, uh, uh, formatted lectures. Uh, and in fact, he kept on postponing the lectures he promised that he would give. Eventually gave them, but uh, I don't think his his heart was really on chatting. And I could, I was lucky, I could chat with him from uh, seven o'clock in the evening over a glass of sherry to dinner till three o'clock in the morning. Oh. And I, I, of course, learned a huge amount from his. Uh, critical way of uh, looking at uh, that everything. Uh, and um, Italy was 
very odd in that respect because uh, one of the uh, weapons they took against fascism was ridicule. And I remember uh, the other interesting story I heard from my father-in-law that a, there's a fascist recruiter who goes into the village and explains people why they should give up uh, being socialist or communist and should join the fascist party. And the person who was being told that, a sinful peasant, says, look, I'm a very sinful peasant. My father was a socialist. My grandfather was a socialist. I cannot be anything other than a socialist. I have to be a socialist. And I can't argue on that. And the fascist recruiter said, what a silly point to make. Because uh, why should you be dominated only by your ancestors? If, for example, your father had been a murderer and your grandfather <laughs> would have been a murderer, what would you have done then? So the simple peasant said, oh, in that case, of course, I will join the practice party. <laughs> and, and so that was a statement, it's a critique, it's also a ridicule. And I think that's a very important aspect of Italian resistance, which people often uh, overlook. And for me, it was very interesting because of my relations uh, who were all in the left and in the resistance, some of whom got killed. Uh, Pierre Schaffer didn't get killed since he was in England, but he carried with it that degree of skepticism, which sold everywhere in economic, in his philosophy, in his ability to uh, uh, enter and, and resist political influences. I found them very striking. But he did disagree with Gramsci on the importance of liberty, personal liberty. Well, yeah, this is a... You and I agree on that. Uh, but there are a lot of people who don't. Uh, mm. He was strongly influenced by Gramsci. And uh, he was really a Gramsci follower, uh, even when... Uh, after he left and Gramsci stayed on. Uh, but as a communist leader, he was, of course, arrested and put in prison. And Safa was worried about Gramsci's ability to read books, so he uh, opened an account in the most famous uh, bookshop, I think, in, in Italy and in Milan, certainly. Uh, where Gramsci could order any book and the costs were met by Schaffer. Uh, so he was in that way trying to do what he could for Gramsci. He remained a great follower. However, there are a couple of respects in which he disagreed. And, and, and I think Mary is absolutely right. And I talk a little about that in my book, uh, is that one of them was how he viewed liberty. Um, um, uh, liberty had been a 
difficult subject for many communists. And indeed, if there was a, any fear of something like Stalinism coming, liberty has something to do centrally with that. Now, uh, when uh, Sapa was having an argument with Gramsci, he wrote to him, he said, you know, you and the party underestimate the value of liberty because no matter what you think about it, liberty is the most important thing that the workers need now. Everything else comes later. They are based on having your liberty, own liberty first. Now, this is not Gansi's view. So that was a disagreement. There was another disagreement in the sense that Gramsci, like, left in many parts of the world, including the left in, in India, where I come from, uh, was uh, very unwilling to join hands with other parties. And, uh, and that was true of the Italian Communist Party also. But Sapa was arguing with Gramsci and others, saying that is a mistake. You have to join hands with all the anti-fascist anti parties and form a united front together. That's another subject on which, at least initially, Gramsci and Trapper disagree. So there are some really important differences between them, which I believe have been overlooked. And that's one of the reasons I like that Mary is making the point now and why in my book I emphasize these disagreement between Gramsci and 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 Shafa, even though Shafa was not only the pupil, but the star pupil of Gramsci. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And gosh, I'd love to go on about Shafa and, and how the Gramscian view of communication influenced Wittgenstein and also I was really interested in what you were saying. He introduced you to Keynes's essays on persuasion. But actually, having said all that, I think we ought to say something about Morris Dobbs, because you had read Boris Dobbs in your yeah. college in Calcutta, and it was one of the reasons you wanted to go to Cambridge. And so what was it that was so important for you about Morris Dobbs' work? Yes. Well, Maurice Dobb was a big figure in my, in my intellectual horizon. When I was a first-year undergraduate, first and second-year undergraduate, after that I went off to, to, uh, to Cambridge. Um, and, uh, but uh, I didn't study them in college, you know, because Marxist authors like Dobb were not taught in any college at that time. Uh, I read it as buying the book and reading it. <laughs> and mostly in my case, not even affording to be able to buy the book, but uh, uh, borrowing the book, either from the library or from a friend. And uh, I didn't quite understand where the labor theory of value might be a possible way of looking at uh, 
value theory, since labor is only one factor of production. But reading Dov, it became clearer and clearer to me that a certain types of description has a uh, relevant that other types of description do not have. That is, uh, Dob gives an example. Uh, Mark Bloch, the historian, said, few the lords lived on the labor of serfs. But somebody could say, hey, well, that's not quite true, because few the lords own land, and land is a productive uh, um, uh, resource. But the fact is, uh, that's also a, a, a very relevant description, uh, description that is the hard labor of the serf will generate a good life for the feudal lord without any kind of hard labor. And, and so basically what Dov was saying is that we have to see the descriptive content of the propositions that economists often unleash without paying sufficient attention to the descriptive content. I got to that understanding, reading Dog, uh, through the night almost. It's about three o'clock in the morning. That is, became clear to me. And, and one of the Dog's interesting things, that he would give examples which are not only the theory. He would talk about utility. Now, he was not a utilitarian. On the other hand, he was saying, well, if I try to take away the descriptive content of utility out of utility theory, as was the pattern at that time with the theory of revealed preference and so on from, um, coming from um, uh, Paul Samuelson and others that more description may enrich and may make you understand something, something about utility, something about labor as a result, and so on, and something about why you want, may want a revolutionary change, and if so, what should you do about it? So I think Dov was bringing in, in my judgment, a perspective the perspective of descriptive richness, which no one quite before or after him had uh, uh, developed in the way that that he had. Gosh, that's, that's so interesting. Do you know that audience are asking lots of really interesting questions, but I've got one last question before I turn to the audience, which is, Really, during that time in Cambridge, you started traveling all over Europe. And that's really interesting. But I think what I found very interesting was your reflections on identity. I mean, earlier in the book, 
you talk about partition and you talk about this terrible story of the Muslim who um, ran into your house dying. And uh, you sort of reflect on both the Hindu-Muslim sectarianism, but the horrendous national sectarianism of the two world wars. So I don't know if you want to add something to that. Yeah. No, that's right, because at the time, uh, Hindu-Muslim conflict became such a dominant thematic presence in India. Uh, Hadn't been earlier, uh, by and large, Hindus and Muslims often got together. There, my grandfather used to tell a story that his elder brother, who lived in the village and who was a very close friend of the Muslim priest, the Molavi, and every evening he would go to the Molavi's house to have a smoke, a hookah. Uh, and they will sit there and have beautiful tobacco. And, and one day they were sitting there, this Muslim priest and uh, my grandfather, elder brother, obviously a Hindu, layman, and uh, a, a, a Hindu priest called Chakravati was going past that. So the Muslim priest, in a very friendly way, said, please come and join us. We are having wonderful tobacco and you would enjoy it very much. Join us, please, Mr. Chakravati. And Chakravati said, look, I am a Hindu priest of the highest Brahmin family and you cannot compare you a Muslim priest with us. We are totally different uh, ancestry, totally different civilization. To which the Moldavi Muslim priest said, when you think about it, what is the difference between us? You, a Hindu priest, live by exploiting the ignorance of ignorant Hindus. And I, a Muslim priest, live by exploiting the ignorance of ignorant Muslims. They're exactly in the same business. There's no difference between us. Now that kind of story would be hard to tell later, but at the time uh, uh, before the uh, riots all began, they were very easy stories to tell. Things changed suddenly, and the riots came about 10 years before uh, partition. And then within about three or four years after partition, the story has changed. People were talking about the side of being a Bengali. Uh, Bangladesh became a separate country, not on grounds of religion, but on grounds of of literature, of language. And so that was very big. But you're also right that once when I'm in Europe, I was absolutely fascinated 
by my wanting to travel. It began with Italy and then France and Germany and Norway, Denmark, Sweden, uh, and, and so forth. And I was really enjoying that and learning something about the world, something a little like what this Muslim faith, Mulder, said, that we may look very different, but we are in actually the same business, as you put it. In my case, it wasn't business, but we're in the same pursuit of life. Uh, that became slowly clear to me. Gosh, and, you know, that explains, well, that's going to be your next book, the why European integration and European unification was so important. Is so important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shall I ask some of the audience's questions? Let me why don't you do that? Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna. I, I'm not really taking it in any particular order, uh, but there's an order. A question from who sounds some sounds Bengali, Sumkanta Banerjee. Where do you think the secular agenda is heading in India? I think the secular agenda is heading exactly where we decide to take it. Uh, India had a long history of secularism. Going back to Ashoka, 3rd century BC, nearly two and a half um, millennia, two and a half thousand years ago, its Indian constitution was strongly influenced by Agba's legality, whereby he mentioned the, it's the job of the state to protect uh, anyone of any religion and make sure that nothing is forcibly done to him, that is Agba. Agba was saying these things when uh, uh, executions were being carried out in Europe, like in Campo de Fiori in Rome, they were uh, burning of people. But this is the time when Agba is wanting the state to protect people of all religion. And that secular secularism has an ancestry in India, which we mustn't forget. So I was very pleased when recently in the election, in West Bengal, uh, the secular forces stood against the attempt at sectarian Hinduism and defeated it resoundingly, enormously powerfully. So I think where it's heading depends on where we want to take it, take it, and we can take it where it was, namely a powerful intellectual force. Now, I'm just getting to another, I've now lost the question I wanted to ask you, but maybe I'll ask it you, because I wrote notes on it, but I can't find who asked it. Okay. Uh, which is, somebody asked, what would be, 
an economic and political system based on reason. Is there such a system? Sorry, economic... Or and political system based on reason. And does such a system exist anywhere? You see, I think ultimately, whatever we claim to defend is connected with reason. Because if people say, why do you say that? We have to give an answer, and the answer is something like a reason. Uh, on the other hand, it may be a good reason, or it may be a rather poor reason, easily defeated. So I think a system based on reason is not in itself a major thing, but system based on scrutinized good reasoning is something that we have every reason to look for. So this is a, uh, an issue that comes up, has come up in the history of the world many times, and it remains today uh, very true that there's no substitute to good reasoning. Uh, to put it another way, if we will complain about somebody doing things which are not right, and you say, why? And you say, well, the reasoning is bad. Well, what's the answer to the bad reason? The answer to the bad reason is good reason. Namely, you have to uh, consider it, criticize it, and see how it can stand. Actually, I, it occurs to me it's, it's a really interesting question because I think somewhere you talk about J.S. Mills saying democracy is government by discussion. <laughs> and I was thinking, is discussion necessarily based on reason? Or is it, you know, is that how you deal with prejudice? Well, the discussion is, could be based on shouting as opposed to reasoning, that's that me too. On the other hand, uh, ultimately, if we are pressed and asked to defend it, a defense has to be a reason, even though it could be a lousy reason. And, and then we have very good ground, very good reason to select, to reject that kind of reasoning. So, ultimately, reasoning has no substitute because we have to think about one way of reasoning as opposed to another and see which we can defend and how. And I think that that seems like too simple a point but it's a point that is also extremely powerful. And yeah, so I'm going to switch to another question. I'm only going to ask two more questions with apologies because there have been some wonderful questions. Um, this is from Hafsa Ahmed, who is a LSE master's student in social policy from Lahore. And okay. she's from Lahore. From Lahore, yeah. 
And she is asking about Tagore's novel, The Home and the World. And did you get your title from that? And did you, are there themes that you identify with in the novel? Uh, yes, I did get my title from that. Uh, and uh, Home in the World, it's a, it's a theme for a Lahorean. It can come very easily. I spent some wonderful time in Lahore. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world with uh, uh, mosques and palaces and, and others, and the greatest garden in the world, the Shalimar Garden. And uh, yes, indeed, and that could as easily make you feel homely. And, and yet we know at this time, because of the way the world is, not just Lahore, every, every place in the world, that it could be very far from your home because there could be, uh, like the governor of Punjab being killed by a militant. Uh, and that's not home. And yet it's as homely a place as it can be. Uh, I went to Lahore when I was going back from England to India, and I thought traveling in Pakistan may become very difficult given the politics. And so I suddenly decided that that's the way I returned to India. So I returned London, Lahore, Karachi, and then Delhi. That's the way I returned. And Lahore was a beautiful presence. And for reasons that does relate to the home, the theme of home in the world in, in, in Tagore. And so now I'm finally coming to the last question, which is from Boris Ivanov, who's doing a PhD at the University of Heidelberg. And yeah, yeah, Heidelberg. Heidelberg in Germany. Heidelberg. Heidelberg, yeah. It doesn't sound like a German name. It sounds more Russian to me. But anyway, he says, Dear Mr. Sen, you mentioned how to unify with common people or getting people involved. I believe this is a question of utmost importance for researchers today, just as much as in the past. Do you have any advice uh, for young researchers how to reach out and bridge the gap between academia and society? Well, that's a really exciting question. Well, like the earlier questions too. It's <laughs> very exciting. But this is Heidelberg being a, a place of academic establishment uh, could be seen as providing the most important ammunition for being together, namely reasoning in which people can jointly participate. Uh, uh, I mentioned earlier my um, uh, uh, my late wife, who was uh, 
who herself died of cancer, but whose father had died of um, fascist uh, brutality. Um, but uh, the parents had met in Heidelberg. They were both students. One came from Berlin, another came from Rome. And they got together and, and produced this wonderful family. But the important thing is that they didn't think that uh, Heidelberg in itself was important, but making uh, Berlin-based German student and uh, Rome-based Italian student talk with each other about their problem, getting them close, uh, makes life um, uh, togetherness of life possible in a way that it may not be otherwise. So I think in some ways we are, and this applies to LSE where this is being held, um, be, it becomes easier for us to uh, coexist. But in principle, the same argument applies to anywhere, to any city, to London, to New York, uh, to um, uh, Sao Paulo uh, and, and Mexico City, where people could uh, try to understand each other's point of view. So I think the question that the gentleman from Heidelberg is asking is a very appropriate one, namely how to proceed. Well, you proceed by sharing reasoning about uh, diverse answers to the same question. It's, it's something that is both educational on one side and restorative in terms of uh, making people uh, hold each other's hand, as it were. I don't think we have time enough to go beyond, but so I'll stop there. And, and, and I think we do have to finish now, but I really, I think there were many more wonderful questions. I guess we can send them to you, but you may not have time to answer. <laughs> but thank you so much. That was just so interesting. And I wish we, we could have gone on for hours and hours and hours. And thanks to everybody at LSE for organizing this. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.